Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk with a Doc, the show where we bring your questions to Providence medical experts for insight and information. Remember, everyone, all of our questions come from you, our listeners, via social media. We can be found on Twitter at Providence and on Facebook under Providence Health System. Use the hashtag Talk with a Doc, that's hashtag Talk with a Doc, for a chance to hear your questions in our episodes. Hello, and welcome to our broadcast. I'm Stacy Cochran, Sports Medicine Program Manager at Providence Health System. As a reminder, the information provided during this event is for educational purposes only. It is not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice. If you have any questions regarding your medical condition or your treatment plan, please consult your physician. Now let's begin. Joining me during today's live event will be Nikki Straley, registered dietitian nutritionist specializing in gut health at Providence. Welcome, Nikki. Thanks, Stacy. Nikki, to get us started, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, happy to do that. So first of all, I have been with Providence since 1996, so it's been a really long time. Um, but my story really starts before that. So when I was in, uh, when I was about seventh grade, I was diagnosed with IBS. So I went through a bunch of tests. Uh, my aunt had ulcerative colitis, so they wanted to be sure that I didn't have ulcerative colitis. So I went through all these tests and then all the tests came back negative. And so the doctor says, well, the good news is you don't have, you know, inflammatory bowel disease, but we think you have IBS. Here's a piece of paper. Goodbye. That was it. No more information, no follow-up. So I think that that's really what started me on my to not look for personal answers, but then to really move into this career so that I could be, um, able to help other people uh, who weren't given the same, you know, tools, the tools that I wasn't given when I was first diagnosed, I want to be able to give them some tools to help them with their IBS. For those of us in healthcare, I think that happens a lot. We find our path through personal experiences. Uh, for those of us that might not be familiar, can you tell us what irritable um, bowel syndrome is? Yes. So irritable bowel syndrome, fondly referred to as IBS, um, didn't used to be uh, talked about that much, but it's, I think, maybe gathered more uh, uh, information. I mean, I think we're getting a lot more publicity about it now, but this is IBS Awareness Month, which is why we're talking about it today. Um, but basically, um, there are some criteria for IBS and the Rome 4 criteria is what we currently use. And so this criteria really shows that you have to have uh, abdominal pain at least one day a week for the last three months and then two of the following symptoms. So there's three of them and you have to have at least two of them. So you have to have abdominal pain related to defecation. You have to have change in bowel frequency and a change in the form of your stools. So that's kind of the medical definition. But once you as a person get are diagnosed with IBS, those symptoms probably look, they're a little bit different for everyone, but it could be um, a, you know that abdominal pain, it could be gas, could be bloating, could be diarrhea, could be constipation. It could be alternating diarrhea or constipation. If it's um, primarily diarrhea, it's called IBSD. If it's primarily constipation, it's called IBSC. And if it's kind of a combo of the two, often it will be called IBSM, which stands for mixed. Interesting. Are there known causes of it, or is it more a genetic thing? Well, there's. That's it, a great question. I think, first of all, we know that it does tend to run in families, but they haven't been able to identify a genetic cause per se. Um, so like I when I mentioned uh, ulcerative colitis, we know that there's definitely some genetic um, links 
it tends to run in families, but IBS does tend to run in families too, but it doesn't necessarily. And so we know there's a link, but it hasn't really been um, discovered yet. So there's still a lot to, to know about that. Um, interestingly, for some people, IBS can actually start after a about with food poisoning. So if that happens for someone, they call it post-infectious IBS. That's interesting. What are the signs and symptoms um, somebody with IBS might present with? Yeah, so, um, you know, so I mentioned the abdominal pain, gas, bloating, constipation, diarrhea. Those are really the most common ones. Um, and I think the key is that it's uh, it lasts for more than three months. So, you know, sometimes someone will get, you know, like a tummy bug and it may last a few weeks or even a month, but uh, when it's extending over several months time, then it's more likely to be a cause such as IBS. So for those listeners out there that are thinking, gosh, this kind of sounds familiar, but I, you know, maybe I fit into this category, maybe I don't. How does somebody go about getting an actual IBS diagnosis? Yeah, I, I, that's a great question. First of all, I don't want people to self-diagnose. The most important thing you can do is to get an accurate diagnosis by a physician or a primary care provider. So typically, someone will go to their primary care doctor, they'll explain their symptoms, and then we look for kind of a, a list of what we call alarm or red flag symptoms. And so if someone has those alarm symptoms, they'll often send them right to the gastroenterologist. And that might be you know, blood in their stool, unintended weight loss family history of uh, inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, um, getting up and having bowel movements in the middle of the night. These are some of those uh, red flag symptoms. And so those will be kind of like you get a fast pass to the gastroenterologist if you have any of those uh, symptoms. And then if you have, you know, the symptoms I mentioned earlier, you know, you have this chronic gas and this bloating and this pain, diarrhea, constipation, um, you still might get a referral to the doctor, but they may do an endoscopy or a colonoscopy. You may get some blood work done, but I definitely encourage people to, to get that full diagnosis because it really makes a difference in terms of what the treatment looks like. Interesting. You know, uh, I think with a lot of medical conditions, once you get a diagnosis, I think the first thing a lot of us ask ourselves is, is there a cure? Um, what about IBS? Is there a cure for this? There's no known cure for IBS. And I think part of it is because we still don't even exactly know what the cause is. You know, I mentioned post-infectious IBS, but there are numerous other causes of IBS. And so until we find a cause, it makes it really difficult to find a cure. Um, with post-infectious IBS, there is some evidence that those people may actually, it may resolve on its own over a couple of years time, not for everyone, but some people do see some resolution of their symptoms. So that is a, that's a positive. Um, but there are definitely um, lots of ways that we can manage the condition. So that's really important. That's good. Um, well, that was really leading into my next question, since there's really doesn't sound like a cure for this. How can somebody manage these symptoms and their condition? Yeah, great, great question. So I think that you know, we, we really look at three main strategies for managing IBS. Remembering that IBS is a constellation of symptoms. So it's not a diagnosis like, you know, diabetes or heart disease where there's some really defined characteristics. It's a little bit more nebulous. So a lot of times we are trying to do management of those uh, those symptoms, um, because that's the best thing we can do to really help you, um, you know, live your full best life. So we really look at three different main uh, treatment strategies, one being diet, 
which I'm happy to talk about a little bit more in a minute. Um, sometimes there's more simple diet strategies and sometimes there's more, I guess, advanced or more complex diet strategies. Um, the next one would be lifestyle modifications. And so that could be stress management or doing gut-directed hypnotherapy, um, exercise. Those are all some uh, lifestyle modifications. And then the last one would be really through medications and supplements. So we know the doctors are really going to manage the medication side, um, but dietitians and, and doctors um, and other practitioners can help with recommending maybe supplements or probiotics that may be uh, offering some symptom relief. Interesting. Okay. You know, talk to me a little bit more about diet management. Um, uh, you, you know, I, I know the supplement and medication pieces, you're very aware of that, but um, I'm more curious about uh, the, the diet management. Yeah. So it really depends. Like for me as a dietitian, it depends on where the person is at when I first meet them. So, um, you know, for example, I had a patient a few months ago that had IBS and this particular patient ate out three meals a day, seven days a week. And it was like, well, the type of diet strategies I'm going to offer for him are going to be different than somebody who has already been following multiple diets or has tried all, you know, multiple diet strategies in order to manage their symptoms. And so really I'm always looking for, you know, let's start with the simple things. And if the simple things don't do anything, let's go to the more advanced or more complex. So from a simple strategy, it may be like, Caffeine. So if someone has diarrhea and they drink a lot of caffeine, caffeine speeds up GI motility, makes everything move through faster. So those people I might say like, hey, you know, those, you know, eight cups of coffee you're drinking in the morning may be contributing to your diarrhea. So, you know, something like that or alcohol can be a contributing factor. Um, another one would be lactose. That's very common. So there's a lot of people out there that have you know, a degree of lactose intolerance. And so if they're drinking, you know, 65 ounces of milk every day um, and they're having stomach aches, you know, maybe it's that they're having too much dairy. So we may start with those kinds of simple strategies or even possibly just cutting back on all the processed foods, maybe switching to some more, um, you know, less processed, more natural type foods. So that would probably be the first step that I would take. But, you know, in that scenario I mentioned where, you know, I have a patient that's already tried all those and that happens a lot when I see people, they've already done all the simple things. So they're kind of like at, you know, they're at the next level by the time I see them. So for those people, um, I'm going to be taking a look at their diet to see kind of what they're, you know, what they're eating right now. And sometimes it warrants looking at uh, FODMAPs. So have you heard of FODMAPs before? I, I have actually, I've known a couple of people that have suffered from IBS and um, had, had heard a couple of years ago, I'd never heard of it, but yes, I have. Um, and I find it really interesting. So please tell us more. So the low FODMAP diet, just a little history, first of all, was um, first I thought uh, FODMAPs are uh, fermentable carbohydrates. So they're found in sugars and starches and fibers um, naturally occurring in your food. These are things that you eat every day. So it comes from certain fruits and vegetables. It comes from honey, dairy, wheat, um, beans, garlic, onions. I mean, these are things that everybody 
you know, eats all the time. So these are very common foods, but these fermentable starches and sugars and fibers, um, what happens is they're malabsorbed in the small intestine. And so when they get to the large intestine, they act as fast food. And so the microbes in your large intestine, when they try to eat those FODMAP carbohydrates, they produce gas and that gas stretches the wall of the intestinal tract, which is then painful and feels uncomfortable. And interestingly for people, some people, the same uh, food can cause constipation and then the same food can cause diarrhea for someone else. So that's what's really fascinating, I think, about learning about the, the FODMAPs. And so what I will do as a dietitian will be to look at the diet to see if they commonly eat a lot of these FODMAP type carbohydrates. And a lot of times I'll recommend um, a an elimination diet. So what it is, is just a two, it's two to six week elimination diet, but mostly it's two to three weeks. And if people do it and they do it well, they can actually get symptom relief in like five to seven days. It's pretty amazing. And if we put them on this like two to three week elimination diet, where they remove pretty much all the FODMAPs from their diet during this time period. And then we hopefully get them some symptom relief. And then we also call it quieting the room. So we just want everything to kind of get quiet so that when we go back in the room and there is, you know, one type of FODMAP carbohydrate that's causing a problem, we can point at that and say, aha, that's what's causing the symptoms. That's what, you know, this, this we call a trigger food is. And so we'll then begin cautious reintroduction. Then we put the FODMAPs back into the diet one by one so that we can really uh, assess whether there are particular FODMAPs causing people's um, symptoms. And so it's, it's a really cool process because it's not meant to last forever. It's really just is to be short term. Um, but it can really change people's gut symptoms and kind of get them a, give them a reset. So it's really exciting. Have you found um, over the years that there's certain foods that uh, trigger IBS more than others? Are there certain FODMAPs that uh, give people problems more often than others? Yeah. So, um, you know, we talked about those simple changes and, you know, the simple changes like, you know, like caffeine, caffeine is not a FODMAP. So those aren't FODMAP issues, but like lactose is a FODMAP. So that's one that we do see uh, commonly. Garlic and onion are everywhere in our food system, our food supply. And garlic and onion are two of the biggest FODMAPs. So is wheat, rye, and barley. So interestingly, it's similar to the gluten-free diet, but it's not quite the same. So just a little explanation, but gluten is a protein. FODMAPs are carbohydrates. They're both found in the same piece of bread, but it, you can't necessarily say if someone says, I feel better when I don't eat bread, of course, they're going to blame the gluten because that's what everybody knows about, but they don't realize maybe it's actually the carbohydrate or the FODMAP that's causing them the problem. So I do see that wheat, rye, and barley can be a big issue for people. And then, you know, people, a lot of people are trying to follow a plant-based diet, which is wonderful. You know, it's part of the Mediterranean diet that we encourage people to follow, but certain fruits and vegetables may be high in FODMAPs and they may actually aggravate some of those symptoms and make the person feel worse when they're trying to do the right thing by eating more fruits and vegetables and beans. Yeah. Nothing worse than feeling terrible when you're trying to do the right right? thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, so I've heard you talk a little, a lot about, you know, caffeine, those sort of things, the FODMAPs, but what about just habits? What are some good types of eating habits for people that suffer from IBS? 
Yeah. So that is really important because, um, you know, there's a lot of um, misinformation, you know, out on the internet right now. And so we always want to make sure that people are, um, you know, following good diet principles. So one of the things I see is skipping meals. So I do encourage people to try to eat, you know, three meals a day. Um, although interestingly, we find that the gut tends to work a little bit better if people aren't such big snackers. So how, how you know, we, I say we like, globally, or even as Americans, we are big snackers. And it's not quite as good for your digestive tract if you're snacking all the time than if you really eat sort of three separate, what we call discrete meals. It really is better for your gut if you give it a chance to rest in between your meals. So that's actually something that I will often recommend. Um, and then chewing your food. You know, how many times do we inhale our food on the way to the next activity? Maybe not so much since COVID started because things have been a little slower, but, you know, in our regular typical busy lives, you know, we're always wolfing something down on the way to the next activity. And so we want to rest and digest. And then we also want to make sure we chew our food thoroughly so that we don't have our, our stomach and the rest of our digestive tract uh, doesn't have so much work to do. So... Great. Thank you. You know, you just mentioned um, kind of the COVID break and the busy schedules. I don't know about you, but I'm really feeling around me, the world getting busier and busier. Um, and I think it can be really hard when you're juggling a busy schedule to manage this. Um, it's hard enough in a busy schedule to eat healthy, but then when you're trying to figure out which FODMAPs to avoid or what to do and what to not. So what about for those, uh, people out there that have these really busy schedules, do you have any tricks for them um, to make sure they're doing what they need to do to help their IBS? Well, first, I think it's really helpful that people work directly with a, you know, a dietitian that specializes in gut health, because I mean, there aren't a lot of us, but there are definitely people, uh, dietitians and colleagues of mine that we really focus on gut health, because we're going to give you the tools so that you can be successful. Because I can't tell you how many times, you know, even if a doctor gives a patient, you know, says you have IBS, here's a low FODMAP diet, they give them a sheet of paper, and the patient goes home, and they're like, I don't know how to implement this. This is too hard. So one of the things that I'm able to do as a dietitian is to give people tools to make things easier. Um, one of the tools I really like is a an app. So Monash University is in Australia, and they're the people that really invented FODMAPs, and they created an app, and they have the only machine in the world that tests for FODMAPs. So uh, whenever they test the FODMAPs, they can put it in the app and then you can look it up and you can find out, does this have, they could use a red light, yellow light, green light system. You can find out, is this a red light food that I need to like limit or is this a green light food that I can go ahead and eat right now? So I think having a tool like the app is very, very helpful. There's a couple of um, different like companies um, that offer different uh, meal plans. So you can get a meal plan and they will send you like low FODMAP meals. Um, there's a lot of great recipes. Like I like uh, FODMAP every day and they have uh, wonderful recipes as well. So, you know, finding those tools that are going to help you can really make a big difference. There are two different companies that offer low FODMAP meal delivery. So it's kind of like, you know, hello fresh or, you know, purple carrot, but it's really just for a low FODMAP meals. So those are great. One's called Epicured and one's called Modify Health. So those are two great programs. So always looking to make things more simple for you because at the end of the day, you know, are you going to be able to help your family if you don't feel good and your stomach hurts and, you know, you're eating all the wrong foods? You know, we want you to feel better. And these are some of the ways you can, some of the things that you can do to really be successful.
Thanks. Um, you know, Nikki, uh, I know you know because it's how we met. I work um, and live in the sports world. Uh, I work with a lot of athletes. Um, question for you, and I know you work with a lot of athletes. What are your advice to active individuals who also have digestive health problems? Is there anything different that you would recommend to them? Um, and any special considerations they need to take in as far as training and or performance? Nikki, I think you might be frozen. Um, and so we'll just pause for just a second to see if you can um, get yourself back on live. I think Nikki's maybe dropped out and she'll join us back here in just a moment. Sorry about that. As we're waiting for Nikki to join, um, I'll just take this moment that if you do have questions, specific questions, we might have a couple minutes at the end for Nikki, uh, assuming she gets back on to join, uh, uh, to answer. So uh, feel free to go ahead and submit some questions and we'll see if we can get Nikki to answer them. I just got a message from Nikki. Uh, she is, her internet went out and she's restarting her computer. So hang in there, everybody, and we will uh, get her right back up. I'm pretty sure we've all experienced something like this. So um, hang in there. We'll get her right back. Uh, looks like we got you back, Nikki. I'm back. You know, isn't it? Isn't technology great when it oh. works? And then when it doesn't work, you just have to pitch it and figure out what's gonna <laughs> what's gonna work. So my internet went out, but I'm back. That was a quick restart. Thank you. I'm sorry <laughs> about that for you. Uh, I, did you hear my question? I didn't. So okay. go ahead and ask it again. Okay. So I. I was explaining that you and I know each other from the sports world, um, and I know you work with a lot of athletes, and I would love to hear from you um, advice you would give active individuals that have some of these same digestive uh, issues, uh, whether it's for training and or performance, uh, what do they need to do or what tips can you give them? So with our um, folks that are athletes and they have digestive problems, we do find that sometimes uh, whatever they're doing for their activity um, may actually uh, uncover IBS that they didn't know they had. So that's actually kind of interesting. So there's a lot of overlap with athletes with digestive problems and people with IBS. They may be one and the same, they may not be. Um, but when you have athletes um, that do have digestive problems, interestingly, a lot of the food that we recommend for people who have digestive problems or people, let me, go back on that one. People who are athletes, the food that we recommend, a lot of it has FODMAPs in it. So what do we tell people to eat the night before like a marathon, a big pasta feed, right? So all that pasta is full of wheat, which is also a FODMAP, which could make people feel really terrible. So, you know, we've got pasta, we have dairy. I mean, how many times do people have dairy, you know, right before they go out on their run. Uh, a lot of the gels that they use for uh, marathons will have high fructose in it. And that fructose can be hard. It's a FODMAP. It may be 
uh, problematic for people. So first of all, I just recommend that someone with that's an athlete that has digestive problems, again, meet with a sports dietitian, meet with a GI dietitian that does work with athletes because they can really tailor a diet for you that's going to help you because I cannot tell you how many people I have met and I am a runner. So I get this too. And, you know, I'll be in a running group and somebody always comes over to me and wants to talk about this. How many times people have to make these porta potty stops? You know, you're in the middle of a race and you don't feel good. I mean, there's not enough porta potties. And so there are solutions out there, but sometimes it really takes working with someone directly that can give you tips um, on kind of what to eat and what not to eat, because sometimes it's just a matter of swapping something. So instead of eating a piece of, you know, a, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, maybe there's a lot of hikers or a lot of uh, triathletes, a lot of cyclists that use peanut butter and jelly sandwiches on their, um, you know, whether out on the road or whether out on the trail. Um, instead of making that on like wheat bread, maybe you'd make it on sourdough bread, which is low in FODMAP or gluten-free bread, which again is low in FODMAP. So, you know, you're still eating your same PB&J, but maybe you're making it a little bit more low, low FODMAP, uh, making sure that the jelly that you're using on there doesn't have high fructose corn syrup. So there's a, there's sometimes little tricks that can really help people. Um, but, you know, working with someone that can tailor it for you is important. And I would imagine you would agree, as we suggest to athletes on anything that we're recommending, make sure you try it in training uh, before you try it in performance. Correct? Yes, yes, because we can train our guts to actually tolerate a lot. So, it, you know, it sounds funny, but, you know, you imagine the people that are the professional eaters, you know, they don't just eat 56 hot dogs, you know, in one sitting overnight, right? They train their guts. And so athletes are able to do that as well. Um, and it's both training your gut for what you're eating and it's the volume. There's a lot of different things that our guts are able to adapt with. And so, yes, training uh, your gut ahead of the competition or ahead of that performance is really going to make sure that you know exactly what you tolerate. So the day of your race or the day of your performance arrives, you know, your meat, your match or whatever it is, and you know exactly what you're going to eat in order to make your gut happy and you're going to be able to perform your best. Makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, we're getting close to our time here, Nikki. Uh, I just wanted to leave it open to you to maybe talk about anything that we haven't covered or something you'd like to go back and add a little bit more to. Any thoughts? Uh, well, one thing that I didn't expand on earlier, but when we were talking about the lifestyle modifications, you know, I kind of mentioned uh, offhand, you know, a couple of um you know, stress management techniques and things like that. Um, one of the really exciting areas of research that we've seen in the last few years is really looking at the gut-brain axis because there's a huge connection with the gut-brain axis and IBS because we used to call it a functional gut disorder. Now they're calling it a disorder of gut-brain interaction. So some of these therapies that have been around for a very long time, but they really do moderate the gut and the brain are really helpful to decrease people's symptoms. So, you know, I, I think I mentioned gut-directed hypnotherapy, there's a an app available called Nerva IBS, and that can be used as a, uh, it's a, literally just an app, and you can use, use this daily, and it can help you with your gut and your brain interaction. There's another app called Zemedy, and the technique it uses is really like a gut-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. So that's another therapy that's available out there. And that app again is called Zemedy with a Z. So those are just a couple of tools that we've been sharing with um, our patients. And they found a lot of benefit from that because we do know that even though stress does not cause IBS, it can definitely aggravate the symptoms. And so, you know, anything you can do to moderate that stress is really, really important. Um, 
Another thing too that I didn't mention earlier is we know that there are a, a large percentage of people that have IBS also have something called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And what that is, is when you have this bacteria lives in your colon, that's normal. Everyone has that. But what happens is sometimes those bacteria end up in the small intestine. They don't really belong there, but they end up there in larger quantities. And when they do, it's called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO for short, S-I-B-O. And sometimes the diet, like the low FODMAP diet can help to not feed those bacteria and it can make the symptoms a lot better. Um, but sometimes people need to go to their doctor and actually get treatment for SIBO. And there's medical treatment like antibiotics for that. There's also antimicrobials that are um, herbal preparations. And those can be really useful as well. So um, I just wanted to point that out that some people, if they have IBS and they're not getting relief from the typical treatments, then maybe they need to get evaluated to see if they have SIBO. But, um, you know, just, I guess, just to really wrap up the whole thing, I just want people to know that, you know, when I was diagnosed with IBS, I was given zero tools and we have so many more tools in our toolbox now. And so my goal as a dietitian, and I think other practitioners too, is really just to find out the right combination of things that can help you so that your symptoms can be managed. You can feel better. You can go to work. You can go play. You can do, you can travel. You can do all the things that you want to do and you know, your gut's going to be happy and it's predictable and you feel good and you're thriving in your life. And you don't have to worry about happen to stay home because you have a tummy ache on a Friday night. So there is hope out there. And I just want to offer that to people. Just don't stop asking. Keep finding people that can help you to really reach your goals. That's great, Nikki. Thank you. Thank you so much for your insight. Thank you for the hope on behalf of everybody out there. Um, that's great. Uh, you know, to share that there are lots of tools and that there's hope out there. So I appreciate that. Uh, thank you to everyone out there listening. Uh, and, uh, and, Jotting down notes. Uh, I didn't see any questions come in, um, but thank you. If you did submit a question, it might not have made it to us. Um, if you guys or if anybody out there is looking for medical advice, please visit providence.org and make sure to follow us on social media at Providence on Twitter and under Providence Health and Service or Providence Health and System on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thank you all so much for joining us, Nikki. Thank you. Thank Thank you, Stacy. Great rest of your day. Thanks, everyone.